Join me as I pray. Father, we've come here this morning in the hope that you can make beautiful things out of us. Um, that's why we've that's why we're here with our community, with our family. That's why we have gathered in this space in your presence. That's why we sing these songs as prayers. It's why we've watched these videos. It's why we've heard the scripture. It's why we now are opening ourselves up to what you want to teach us from the life of Jesus. And so would you... Uh, by your spirit, fill these words, fill this time, fill this space, fill our hearts, open us up that we can give you all that we are and you can make beautiful things out of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So what, um, what was your first job? I mean, the first time somebody other than your parents gave you money in exchange for something that you produced. Our um, philosophy of work at my home growing up, my dad's philosophy was pretty simple, and it was you first learned to work hard, and then you learned to work at whatever it is that you were going to do. So you start on the farm, and then you work construction, and then you venture out and you go find your career, because you got to learn to work Hard. So when I was nine years old, I started working on the neighbor's farm. Uh, that neighbor goes to our St. Catharines location, P. Workington, and he paid me two cents per master to fold cardboard boxes. If I went really, really fast, he and his son Chris, and, and if we went really fast, we could make $2 an hour. It was amazing money. <laughs> it was shortly after that that I switched farms, another uh, farm family in our church, the Haynes Brothers Farm, and there we were put to real farm work. We were out in the trees, in the orchards, picking sweet cherries, picking sour cherries, and the worst job that I have ever worked, which is picking tomatoes in the heat of the August sun. It's horrible. I hated, hated, hated picking fruit. So I basically didn't do much of it. I, I would spend a good part of my day sitting on the top of the ladder, wearing the harness with the 11-quart basket in my lap, and it was kind of like one for the basket and one for me, and then take a break, and then one for the basket and one for me, and then take a break, and oh, it was horrendous. There were days, we would hate some of us, we would hate work so much, there were days where we would take a minute every hour to sacrifice on a rock a sweet cherry to the rain gods to pray that clouds would form in the sky so we could go home. The, the rule on the farm where we worked was if you could see 12 raindrops simultaneously, that was called a storm, and you could go home. We would pray for 12, just 12 raindrops at the same time. Oh, I hated that work. And um, every hour or so, Rob would come by with his jitney and pick up all the baskets of fruit that we'd picked and punch our punch cards, which he didn't do very often for me. We got paid $1.60 for an 11 quart of sweet cherries, and I think I still probably made $2 an hour. I hated it, and I was bad at it, and I don't think, Dad, I learned how to work hard. I learned how to avoid work, which I do to this day. 
Uh, it was awful. It was an awful experience. And shortly thereafter, Rob shuffled me and a whole bunch of us off the farm and got other people to pick his fruit because he, he wanted somebody who was going to actually produce the fruit that he needed to have come from the orchard. And somewhere in there is a metaphor for what it means to be a poster child of following Jesus. Last week we started this series and we talked, uh, um, you know, in the fall we did a series, I called it Three Weird Things That Jesus Did. Uh, this is sort of a series of three weird stories that Jesus tells. We started this series last week with a story that Jesus told about two boys who were told by their dads to go into the vineyard and to do some work, to pick some fruit. And the first boy was rude and disrespectful and disobedient. He said to his dad, I don't want to. And later on, had a change of heart. And he went and, and did the work, changed his mind and changed his behavior and was obedient to his dad. The other son gave the opposite reaction. He was respectful and obedient and submissive and said, yes, sir, you can count on me. And he never actually went out in the vineyard to do the work. And Jesus says, there, there are two kinds of ways of following me. Well, there's, it's oversimplified that way because we're both at various times, both of those sons. But um, there are two ways to follow me. There are some people who or maybe rough on the outside, who've been disobedient and disrespectful and unsubmissive to God, but who at some point in their life or who ongoingly in their life are working to have a change of heart and to align their life and their behavior with what God wants. And there are other people who put on this incredibly impressive show of, of religion, of discipleship, of faithfulness, of piety, of prayer and worship and whatever. But in the core of their being, they're never actually doing what it is that God wants them to do with their life. And Jesus says, the poster child for following me is the, is the heart that is filled with repentance, not the heart that's filled with religion. Well, in the story that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus takes that metaphor of working in the vineyard and extends it in order to help us think more deeply about what that heart filled with repentance looks like in contrast to the heart filled with religion. And so he goes on in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 33. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on a device or whatever you want to read along, Matthew 21 verse 33. It says this, listen to, this is Jesus, listen to another parable, another story. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Jesus says, I want you to imagine there's a, there's a wealthy man who buys himself a piece of property. And on that property, he plants a vineyard. Now, he's serious about this vineyard. In fact, he makes a significant financial investment. He builds a wall around the vineyard. It's sort of like a ancient bird banger. It's to keep the animals from sneaking into the vineyard and stealing the grapes. Maybe an ancient scarecrow, like just a, building the wall. He builds a watchtower in the middle so that he can see the whole vineyard. He can look for intruders and thieves and fire, and it's sort of an ancient security system. And then, and then in the middle, he builds also this wine press. He's not just growing grapes to bring them to market. He's 
He's planning to start his own VQA label. He's, he's, he wants to build a winery. He wants a restaurant. He wants to bring people to his. He's, he's made a significant investment in the property, and he's expecting a significant return on investment. So since he's not going to do the farming, he rents out the vineyard to some tenant farmers. Now, in the way economics work in the ancient world, uh, there's a significant chance that these renters are actually the original owners of this property that because of financial pressure, they had to sell to this landowner. They couldn't afford to sustain the farm anymore. And, and he built the vineyard and then rents it back to them. And they're going to do the work and they're going to pay annual rent as a proportion of the fruit that they harvest in the vineyard. And so it says in verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit, to pay the rent. The tenants seized his servants and they beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way. It, it comes to be harvest time, to collect, time to collect the annual rent. And this landowner sends a contingent of servants to the tenant farmers and they decide they're not paying the rent. They're going to squat on this farm. And so they... Uh, they beat up the servants. One of them they kill. Another one they stone to death. And they send the beaten servant back to the landowner and say, tell your master, we're not paying the rent. So he sends another contingent of servants. This one's larger than the last. This is kind of the ancient equivalent of a sternly worded legal warning. <laughs> it's rent time, fellas. And the farmer's Treat these servants the same way. Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed them. The, the landowner says, you know what? I'm just going to send my son. My son will go. He's got legal standing over this vineyard. He has my authority over these renters. Sure, you know, people mistreat servants. In the ancient world, a servant was considered more like a tool than an actual human being. You could, you could do bad things to people's servants, just kind of pay a fine, and it was all good. But they would never do that to the son. They would respect the legal authority of the son. The son shows up and the tenants see him coming and they say, you know who that is? That's the heir. That's the one who's going to get this property when the old man dies. If we kill him, first of all, the old man's got nobody to leave this property to. Second of all, he's going to know that we're serious and he's going to come crawling back to us with his tail beneath his legs and he's going to sell our farm back to us and they drag him outside of the vineyard and they kill him in verse 40 Jesus addresses the crowd especially the chief priests and the elders the religious leaders some of the most influential and spiritually respectable people in all the nation of Israel he says to them therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants well, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his, his share of the crop at harvest time. 
I love that response. They're super angry, right? They, they're gonna, he's going to put a, those wretches to a wretched end. The word is evil. He's going to take those evil men and he's going to kill them in an evil manner. There, you see, these chief priests and elders are some of the wealthiest people in all of Israel. They're the cultural elites. They live in Jerusalem and probably own farms in other places in the country. They've had their experience with tenant frustrations with people not paying rent they sympathize with the owner and they say this is not good in fact they said the owner should invoke the law of lex talionis which was an ancient law the law of retaliation we call it eye for an eye you have every right to inflict on someone who has injured you a punishment that matches the crime in kind and degree he killed my son i'm gonna kill him I said he should destroy these tenants and then rent out the farm to somebody else. Get rid of these guys and bring somebody in who's going to actually produce the fruit that the vineyard promised. This whole story, as odd in some ways as it is, is rooted in a very familiar ancient metaphor that all the, the Jews, first century Jews, Jesus was speaking to would have recognized the metaphor right away. In the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament of the Bible, quite often, the vineyard is a metaphor for God's people. It's a metaphor for all of the people who want to um, live their life in a Godward direction, in a Godward orientation. It's, it's a metaphor for all of the ways in which... Uh, the world comes on to take on the character of God when people live individually and collectively in a Godward, in a godly kind of a way. The vineyard represents the people who are living for God. The landowner, of course, is God himself. In the story, the renters are the people who are responsible to make sure that everything in the vineyard is happening the way things are supposed to be happening. In this case, actually, the chief priests and the elders that Jesus is talking to. The servants who visit the vineyard, in the story, metaphorically, they're the Old Testament prophets, messengers from God who have repeatedly come to the community of God's people and have said, this is not right what you're doing. Align your life in the way that God is inviting you to live. And all the way through the Old Testament, more often than not, those prophets were ignored and despised and even at times beaten up and killed. This whole story well, I suppose the last piece of the metaphor is that Jesus is the son that God sends to finally bring order to what's happening in the vineyard. A son who was, would be, I mean, we're now telling stories about the last week of Jesus' life. Within seven days of telling this story, Jesus would be dragged outside the city of Jerusalem and killed by these very people that he's talking to. The point of the story is this. In effect, the whole world is God's vineyard. God has a vision for what life in this world, for life among the people who live in this world would look like. And God has made a significant investment of love 
in trying to help this world become everything God dreams that this world could be a place that is filled with people and communities who love God with everything they have and everything they are, communities that love themselves, communities in which people love each other as much as they love themselves, communities that band together to love all of the rest of the world. God has a vision and a dream for what life in this world could look like. And God has given us the responsibility to be the people who do the work in the vineyard to make that dream come to fruition. To be the ones who produce the fruit of the life of God in the world. And in order to, uh, in order to, continue to shape us into the kind of people who are producing the fruit. God sends his messengers. God sends his messages. God invites us continually to align our lives with, in, in submission and obedience to his will so that, and this is the point, we live lives that produce the fruit of the kingdom of God for him. So that we live lives in whom and through whom the love of God shines. In which we love God and in which we love ourselves as those who are loved by God. In which we love each other and in which all of us together love the world. The, 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 the invitation, the, the vision that God has for the world is for a community of people who would have a heart of repentance. Who is... Uh, committed to walking away from the kind of life that they had been living in order to align their life with the will of God. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist is preaching his only recorded sermon in the gospel according to Matthew. And in, in Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, John the Baptist says this to the same crowd of people. He says, produce fruit. In keeping with repentance. We said last week that the life God wants, the poster child, the person who's following Jesus is the life of the one who is a heart filled with repentance, not a heart filled with religion. And yet an attitude of repentance is an attitude that says, I don't want my life to be what it's been. I want to live my life in the Jesus way with Jesus' help in Jesus' power, for Jesus' sake, so that the life and love and the power and presence of Jesus flow through my life into the world. That is the poster child of the one who follows Jesus. Not just the one who nurtures an attitude of repentance, but the one whose life produces the fruit in keeping with repentance, the fruit of love. And it turns out, according to Jesus, that Jesus is the centerpiece in how that happens. In verse 42, Jesus says this. says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? He's now confronting them directly. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting a passage out of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, Psalm 118. You can read it on your own time uh, some other time. But he's, he changes the metaphor from farming to construction. And he says, you know, in Psalm 118, it talks about a stone 
that the builders rejected the ones who were responsible for giving shape to the life of the community looked at this stone, which is Jesus, and said, no, that's not, that stone's not useful for anything. They rejected it, they ignored it, they pushed it off to the side. And Jesus says, according to the scriptures, it turns out that that very stone that people rejected becomes the foundation stone on which everything rests. The stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone on which the house is built. Jesus You know, the stone is the same in the story as the son who was rejected and dragged out of the vineyard and killed. Jesus is the one that the religious people, the chief priests and the elders were rejecting and saying, you know what, you really have nothing to do with the life that God is inviting us into. They are rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says, you reject me at your peril. Because As it turns out, in what God is doing in the world, I'm the foundation of everything that God is doing. I'm the foundation stone of the world of love that God is building. Which means, verse 44, he says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus says the entire trajectory of your life in some way is determined by how you relate to the stone, how you relate to me. He says, the one who stumbles on the stone will be crushed. Uh, I had a stone until this week, actually until yesterday, I had a stone in my front yard. It was sitting in my uh, garden and then somebody gave kind of decoratively, but somebody then gave me a stone on which you know our street address is written and whatever, it's a beautiful thing. So I pulled, some weeks ago, I pulled the stone out of my garden. I put this uh, address marker in its place. And I just kind of left the stone on the lawn thinking, you know what, I'll clean it up tomorrow morning. Well, that night, it rained and the temperature fell and the stone froze to the ground. I went out the next morning to go pick it up and to put it away. I couldn't lift it off the ground. It was frozen to the ground. So I kind of was trying to fit my fingers underneath. I couldn't get it to budge. And so I decided, because I operate at this level of wisdom, I decided that I was going to kick it to dislodge it, and then I would carry it back to the house. Well, when I kicked this thing, not only did I nearly break my toe, I just about fell over the thing and broke uh, other bones as well. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. He says, those who try and kick the stone out of the way, they're going to find out that they're the ones who stumble and fall and their life shatters. He says, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. It's sort of the metaphors of walking through a construction site with overhead danger and you're just not paying attention and the thing falls on you and your life is crushed. It's a similar saying the rabbis had a saying that said, if a, a rock falls on a pot, clay pot, woe to the pot. But if the clay pot falls on the rock, Woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. The whole point is, if the clay pot is going to mess with the rock, it's the clay pot who's going to pay the price every time. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you ignore or reject me. You ignore or try to kick me to the side. 
at your own peril. You, you will be the one who finds out that you are paying the price for ignoring me. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, Jesus is not saying, if you ignore me or you kick me off to the side or whatever, that God is going to come on you like a, down on you like a sumo wrestler and shatter your life and try and ruin everything for you, whatever. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the source of life. I'm the source of God's love. I'm the key to everything that God wants to do in the world. God wants you to experience forgiveness and intimacy in relationship with him. God wants you to know healing and growth in relationship with yourself. God wants you to experience acceptance and connection in relationship with each other. God wants you to experience meaning and purpose in relation to the world. And I'm the key. I'm the foundation stone on which all of that is built. And if you ignore me or kick me to the side, you are going to miss out on everything that God wants to do in your life. It's like the the person who ignores Jesus. Is like the scuba diver who cuts their own breathing tube because they don't want to carry the tank. Jesus says, your attitude towards me determines everything. And so here are the two questions for us to reflect on this morning. Because what he goes on to say, verse 43 And this is the end of the story. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from people who ignore and reject Jesus, who aren't producing the fruit of the life that God is looking for and will be given to people who will produce its fruit. The two questions that we have to wrestle with are these. Number one, uh, how are you responding to Jesus? Are you living a life of ignoring Jesus, of rejecting Jesus, of trying to kick Jesus off to the side, avoid his, uh, the demands that he places on our life, ignore who he is, ignore that he's come, ignore his death, his resurrection, ignore the forgiveness and the transformation, the freedom from guilt and shame that he offers. Are you ignoring Jesus or... Is Jesus for you the foundation on which your entire life is built? What does that look like? Well, just look, looking back to the story. Those who are building their life on the foundation of Jesus, number one, are people who, unlike the tenant farmers, realize that their life does not belong to themselves. Who aren't They're not building a life for themselves. They recognize that they are living their life in submission and obedience to the will of the landowner, to God himself. That our fundamental orientation is my life is not my own. My life belongs to God. And the fruit of my life will be the fruit that God uh, is inviting and empowering me to produce, which is the fruit of love. That's what I want more than anything. Out of the story, Uh, It will be people who, instead of ignoring and rejecting the servants, the messengers that God sends, it'll be the ones who embrace and listen. Um, Those messengers could be those who have written the scriptures. And hearing God's voice in the book, those messengers could be those in leadership in this community or in leadership in other faith, you know, Christian faith communities. Those voices could be 
people in your life group. They could be a, a Christian mentor that you have. It could be friends or a family member who are all eager to participate with you in being a part of the voice of God and guiding you back towards, no, no, this is the way Jesus is inviting to, us to live. Walk in this, produce the fruit of this life. That's what it looks like to not ignore or reject, to kick to the side the person of Jesus, but to make him the foundation of everything. How are you responding to Jesus these days? And the second question is, what is the fruit of repentance that's showing through in your life? Because God's inviting you into a life where we love God with all that we are and all that we have. Would you say that your heart's desire, that your goal, that your intention, your motivation is to in all things love God with everything you are and everything that you have. And how would God know? Could someone see your love for God? He's inviting us into a life in which we're learning to love ourselves because we're loved by God, where we are finding healing because we're addressing the brokenness in us, where we are finding forgiveness and growth because we are accepting the forgiveness that God provides through Jesus Christ and we're learning to trust in him to make us different kinds of people. He's inviting us into a life where we're learning to love each other, live relationships that are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. He's inviting us to live a life in which we together learn to love the world, learn to do what Jesus did, and to give himself, give ourselves sacrificially, to give of ourselves everything that we have, in order that other people can experience the presence and power of God, they can know the life and the love of God for themselves. What does it look like for you to live a life that's producing the fruit of repentance? So I just want to, I want to invite the band to the stage. And instead of closing in prayer for you, uh, somebody at each of our locations is going to lead us in a closing prayer that we're going to pray together. A prayer uh, to God through Jesus in which we invite Jesus, beg Jesus, ask him to deal with some of the ways that we've been living for ourselves and to change us into the kinds of people who are in increasing ways living the life of repentance that's leaving behind the people we have been in order to align our lives in the way of Jesus, with the help of Jesus, and the power of Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Because that's how we are the kind of people who produce the fruit in keeping with repentance. That's how we become poster children in what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Let's pray at each of our locations.